today on Owl Have You Know. The whole idea is let's try to deliver the right care at the right time. So as we're seeing telemedicine, we're also seeing in-home healthcare, and we're seeing different modalities that at the end is really trying to keep people healthy with all these value-based payment models. Welcome to another episode of Owl Have You Know. I'm your co-host, David Trugleaver, and I'm on the line here with Omar. Omar is a physician executive. He's an associate professor of pediatrics and a healthcare consultant. He's also Rice Business Class of 2018, the professional program. So Omar, thank you for coming on. And please say your last name for me. No, David, a pleasure being here. My last name is Matuk Villason. So, okay, I'm going to start this a little different. I usually ask for a Harbor Cruise, but when I looked at your LinkedIn, Omar, and from what I understand about you, I mean, you got a lot going on. You're investing, you're advising, you're leading large organizations, you're in academia, medicine, science. So when you wake up in the morning, I already know you're off to do a million things. So how do you go about prioritizing your day? Excellent question. And that's what my, actually my wife asked me that every day. So number one thing I can tell you, I, there are certain things that I keep on a routine that keep me centered. Like number one, I can tell you is like time with the kids, time with the wife, mindful time also with family that I have in Mexico. So that's always a must. And that helps me kind of prioritize. And after that, you know, like everyone else, probably the things that have urgency during the day, you try to wrap them up in the morning, especially. And uh, the easy part of my job is being a doctor because I think they really train us very well and you do it automatically. But the other part, you know, the trying to teach other doctors, trying to do research, which I think I'm terrible or the, or the leadership part, I think that depends on what is going on at the moment. Exactly. And maybe I should have asked, how do you triage your priorities? Right? Yeah, yeah. Like, for example, when the COVID thing was going on, so what's the most, the most urgent thing right now? Let's say, let's keep our doors open for the clinic. Uh, and then with the team, no, it's not only me, it's really a team behind all, all, all of us that help us succeed. Okay, and let's talk about the clinic because I want to say that, of course, you're, you're running a clinic and you have a practice, but there are some interesting things you're doing around different types of clinics and getting help to people, yes? Yes, yes. So the main difference, I don't know if, have you ever gone to the doctor? <laughs> oh, don't even get me started about my relationships with the healthcare system, but yes. So for you, when you go to the doctor, it's very transaction. You go to see them and your insurance or either yourself, we pay for that time. So a thing that has been coming for almost 10 years or more, it's a payment system which you can put it different names, right? But bottom line, you are paying for a bundle. So you may pay a month, you may pay by year. And we basically opened recently a clinic at the College of Medicine. And the term is called direct primary care, in which patients pay $60 a month and they get full access to a doctor. So they can see him 24 seven, they can see him every time. And that just changed the entire relationship because now there's no financial transaction every time you see them. And that really has helped us, you know, to serve patients in Houston, especially the uninsured, which we have 1.5 million. 
it's a big market. Uh, they have access to healthcare now. That's amazing. I think the subscription model is pretty interesting because, well, I mean, in sort of regular business, if you're not getting a service you're happy with and you stop the subscription, but I think more broadly, I think the incentive structure is something that's interesting to explore. And I was planning on asking this at the end, but you're making me think of it now. And I wanted to ask, I mean, come on, let's call out the elephant in the room. If you go to the doctor more and the more sickly you are, the more transactions happen. So are there incentive systems out there where doctors are incentivized to keep patients healthy and out of a clinic or hospital? Oh my, yes. You, you, you hit the question. Very good question and right on a spot. So there are different, let's say, mechanisms in which you can do that. Let's speak about direct primary care because we already touched that point. So direct primary care is a model in which initially started more as a concierge medicine. No? So you have the doctor that was tired of the insurance and the doctor says, you know, I am only going to accept uh, cash and no, no insurance. So what happened, you will see a lot of clinics popping around the country and in Texas, but few of these providers target their services specifically toward patients who have no access to healthcare insurance. So that's where we try to find our niche and the innovation. And if you think about it, you're aligning the financial incentive with the clinical incentive, because as you write full self for, if the consumer is not satisfied with your services, they will just go to somewhere else. So you really have a model with the strong incentives to innovate in how you deliver care, in this case, primary care. And then you can aim to improve quality or be more effective because your patients are gonna reach out if they are sick. So you actually want to keep them healthy so their utilization is not that high and you can have more members. So like a subscription model, right? Of course, yeah. I'm very familiar with that being in technology sales and subscription or software as a service. So that's just it. You want the subscription to keep going and the utilization to be relatively low. And in the case of healthcare, that's good. Everyone's winning. <laughs> you don't, as a patient, you don't want to be, air quotes, utilizing. And I mean, there's always downsides to this, right? Because you always need a insurance for bad things. Like you cannot prevent an appendicitis or a fracture or a catastrophic diagnosis. So you will always have to have that piece of protection. And really that's what you need insurance. And the typical example is you don't use an insurance, speaking about the car industry, you never use the insurance to change the oil. You use the insurance if you have a major crash. And there's a lot of comparison that people do that in healthcare. Now in another segment of the population, 65 and above, there's a governmental you know, uh, program that is called Medicare. Everyone gets insurance. And there's a part of that that is called Medicare Advantage. So, and I'm going to there because you ask about the incentives. So from a business perspective, there's so much private equity capital venture funds going into that arena. Because what the government is doing, they are giving a fixed amount per month to these different programs. And then you have to take care of the patient. You assume full risk. So you think for a moment, do you have a you know, elderly or, or uh, in, your, in your life? They tend to be healthy, or if they are sick, trying to get the right healthcare for them is challenging. So you have all these clinics developing uh, all around the country, trying to tackle that, doing excellent service, 
And whatever they save, they may keep a portion of it. And that's where, the, the, from a business perspective, that's where the money is. Thanks for the primer there and just an understanding of where things could possibly be heading. And it's just wild to me because I recently had to, well, let's shift to, say, remote care or, or telehealth. And to me, when I had a telehealth appointment quite recently, because it was so hard to go see my primary, I just went on and essentially did direct primary care. It was a doctor through a different company that I've never used before, and it was less than $50, and I saw a doctor in 20 minutes and was able to get the help that I needed. And I'm sitting here thinking, my goodness, why does it feel like that telehealth is not as pervasive as one would hope it to be? Or maybe I'm missing something. It seems like that should be much more accessible. What does that look like from your perspective? And again, this will be my perspective. I think it's a modality of care. It doesn't mean that everything that you do needs to be telehealth now. So what we discover is basically for like individuals and especially the payers, the insurance side, prior that they were not willing to compensate anyone's time to do telehealth. COVID happened, it forced society to, as a patient, to agree to see a, pay, a doctor on the video, because also the patient didn't want, and agree the payers to pay for that. So it was just an acceleration for folks that have been doing this, I don't know, 20 years, that they say, this is coming, this is coming. They just accelerate the transition 10 years. What we're seeing right now, and there's folks that study these publication articles, it's a modality of care. So we need to understand that certain things you can do a telehealth visit. And telemedicine doesn't necessarily need to mean having a video. I don't know if you know how many people are zoomed out nowadays. <laughs> you can have a phone call, you can have a text message, all this asynchronous communication. And the whole idea is let's try to deliver the right care at the right time. So as we're seeing telemedicine, we're also seeing in-home healthcare, and we're seeing different modalities that at the end is really trying to keep people healthy with all these value-based payment models. I love that. The right care at the right time. And it seems so obvious, but so hard to get to. Yes. The execution <laughs> is key, you know? <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, you're doing the work of the Lord. So, and I did no, want to. It's a team. It's not me. I, I'm telling you, the, the healthcare is a, it's a team sport. I wanted to also look at something I read on your profile as well that you're focused on the intersection of primary care and then digital health. And we're kind of alluding to it. So, what, what does that exactly mean and why is that important? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, as I was doing my MBA, we all, you know, Rice is wonderful at really uh, poking all of our inner bear to do something entrepreneurial. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm a pediatrician. What can I do? With all the technology that has been going on for 15, 20 years, it's clearly that, you know, uh, Slack, text message, how you manage projects, that's how we probably can manage uh, disease or health. Like every single person, let's say if you're a diabetic, we need to manage your diabetes like if it was a project. You need to have your project manager, a doctor, you need to have like a nurse, a nutritionist, you need to have a pharmacist, even social worker. Like you need a whole team to take care of you. 
and for that, for each one of those diseases. And there are a lot of solutions that can be applied in primary care. The biggest difficulty with the term primary care is so broad. It's like saying that you are doing business. It's like, what? what is that? <laughs> it's the same on primary care. It's You have the burden of trying to do everything uh, with little reimbursement and little incentive from the system. But you have the opportunity from an entrepreneurial perspective to target one segment of the population, perhaps one or a couple of conditions at a time, and really narrowing uh, your product. That is, for example, what Hims or Hairs have been doing. They did an IPO and they did very good. There are other companies, RO, RO. There are a bunch of companies popping up in the nation really on that intersection because it's, the market is so broad and the consumer wants solutions that as a doctors, we fail to provide on a traditional visit in the office, like it's 10 minutes and people hate. Well, <laughs> I actually <laughs> looked up, why is it that I just can't get someone to come to my home? So I have my chiropractor come. I have my vet come to take care yeah. of my animals. I have a masseuse come to my place and a lot of that, of course, I thought, well, we're in a pandemic. Sounds like I shouldn't be going out to large groups of people. Right. So, And we've all seen the movies of the doctor showing up with his bag to the home, taking care of the patient in their bed and so on. And I said, why did that go away in the, I don't know, 40s or so? And the, the answer is pretty obvious and you're already talking about it, but, but go ahead, please. No, I mean, you know, it is intuitive. Who's paying for it? Exactly. Exactly. You know? yeah. I mean, at the end, uh, if the patient, there are companies actually, there's one in New York. I don't know how they're doing. Pager was the name. There's one other in LA. There are a bunch of, especially in big cities that you have this concierge doctor that goes to your house. But you know, the price is, is, is not for the masses at this moment. But again, you don't need every single doctor to go to your house for every single ailment. We just need to find the right modality of care that you need. So I think there's a lot of opportunities there and, and it's exciting. Like I, I had the opportunity actually last year to start teaching a course uh, for the MBA about this uh, at Rice. So uh, if anyone wants this is a small promo, you can go and sign up. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually called value intro to value-based care i love it omar so okay i'm going to shift a little bit and just to make sure so you're currently chief medical officer at the university of houston college of medicine did i get that right yes i'm having the really the honor and the opportunity to do that we are building the school it's a brand new school uh, so it's a big title but we are small uh, and, and I'm very lucky that they are giving me this opportunity. And so far has been a great journey. Mm. Could you help us and describe your charter with this CMO role? Yeah, I mean, since we're really starting right now, it's more on building the clinical infrastructure, setting up the clinical policies and procedures, and trying to determine, you know, with with a team, right? It's not only my decision, especially uh, in a big in a big university. Where do we want to be headed as a school? Where do we want to be seen? Where do we want the students to really 
learn how to be good primary care doctors because our mission is to train unrepresented minorities and lure them to stay in primary care, which financially doesn't make a lot of sense because if you're a specialist, you make double. So you really need to create these experiences that attract the students to an area in which it can be very enjoyable. You can have a very good lifestyle. Uh, and, and I guess that's that's for now in the short term, right? We don't have any hospital. Right now it's mostly clinics. And, and then, you know, uh, other projects on the side. So pull out your magic wand and <laughs> use that for the future of this new school you're building. Where do you see it going and what does success look like for your new school? Yeah, and, and full disclosure, this is Omar Matuk, not the school uh, strategy. You know, this will be my thought. I would love to see if we can really build those direct primary care practices. I think there's a huge opportunity to serve folks that have no insurance on their, um, I call this like a value-based care arrangement, but it's really not because you have no insurance, but on the membership model. And then have a student see how a primary care doctor can practice without the pressure of like keeping up like 30, 40 visits every day. Like here you can see, you know, 15 patients where you really get to know the, the people, keep them healthy. Like if we are really able to create a marketplace for what we are now teaching, because there's always a disconnect because what you, on what you see in the classroom where you want to teach someone and then you finish your degree and you're like, oh, but look at the marketplace. It's like behind of what you're trying to tell me like it's the right thing to do. So if 10 years, if we're able to change the local marketplace, of course, or even be a model, honestly, in the nation of, hey, guys, we can do this. And, you know, it's actually financial successful. That will be a magic one. I think that will be a great contribution to the city. It's a very cogent answer. I feel like you're a little shy there, but I mean, that sounds very exciting. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and, and I may be having a, yeah, another opportunity and I may move from UH because we probably are going to build something uh, for, for, for Hispanics in Texas and, and it's, my, it's on the same arena, let's put it that way. Very good. So one last topic, I think, and we'll slowly land the plane. And again, something else I found on your profile, mental health. Is that something that you focus on? And if so, into what capacity? You know, I'm not an expert professionally on mental health. I have become just savvy as a pediatrician because I have seen a rise on mental health issues on my practice on children that now, I mean, of course, was exacerbated with isolation, COVID restrictions, that's at home working, kids on a screen. And I feel like it's something that now we need to really focus and be mindful, especially on first world countries. Uh, I'm still very connected to my home, which is Mexico City. And I go once a month to practice with my dad, who is also a doctor. And it's very interesting to see here we have everything in the United States, but our mental health suffers because either we don't recognize it or we don't use the proper techniques. And sometimes I feel like back home, there's not a lot, so many mental health issues. There are other problems, right? So I just feel like as a doctor right now, we really need to 
understand the patient as a whole and really not disregard symptoms that are related in the mental health. And we have a shortage. There's not enough psychiatrists or even child psychiatrists, even if you speak in Texas, that can cover the demand that is needed. Uh, so I think that's why my interest came up and really my desire to train better as a professional. And I don't have a solution. I know there's a company in California trying to, to solve this problem, doing like telehealth visits on therapy. Uh, there's other company in Mexico that I, I am just advising that is doing, but for the Latin mar market uh, on this, it's named Therapify. So I think there's a big need in the market there to really address all the mental health. So on COVID and whether it's mental health or just more broadly mm -hmm. looking at the healthcare system, what sort of things do you feel? And let's try to, <laughs> I'm sure we can find bad things, good things. So let's talk about a spread. Some things that you think have improved as a result of the world managing through COVID and some things that you can call out as, hey, Broadly speaking, we could have really done better or at least learn from that and improve going forward. Oh, yes. I mean, I think number one thing, pandemics are political, are not medical. So there's a lot of things that will not have happened if we really have followed the science. That's like number one thing. And I mean, I guess people are realizing now that uh, instead of living on the 21st century where you have evidence of things and you have the tools to really like describe what's happening, we are forcing ourselves somehow in the conversation from the dark ages in terms of beliefs and who do you follow. And I think that was an eye opener for me. Uh, and there's some people that discuss this, but I think that was key fabulous, the development of technology. There's a, a doctor that I follow on Twitter and his name is Eric Topol. I mean, he's, he's amazing. The guy is he's a science, physician, scientist, cardiologist. And he even has a pin tweeted on his profile. And you can see he put the timeline of the development of the COVID vaccine. So I, that was fantastic. I mean, never has happened in life. And going back to my first comment, we have the tools and the capacity as society to develop like solutions for things that 50 years ago or 20 might kill a bunch of us. But we are not using them because we are being so politicized. And I think that's, that's a, I don't know how you fix that, uh, but that's an issue. Misinformation, there's a huge now trend on how as a medical professional, or even any professional, you're gonna combat misinformation and really trying to, it's not about, hey, hear my voice, it's about, guys, like the sun is in the sky, it's not like someone painted or the sky is blue, like realities <laughs> that you need to face. That I even see with my own kids, because I see how between kids, they discuss things that they hear from their dads and they come to my house and they, Tell me certain rational in thought that I think is dangerous because we have to think what are we trying to raise or to train for the next generation. So I think that's, uh, I mean, I, I saw that with COVID, no? Uh, a lot of disparities. I think if you are well-off people in the pandemic, you suffer. Uh, but there really pointed out as a society that there's a segment of the population that, I mean, 
you take away certain things and they, they cannot just do the same as you do. And even you do that as a country, it's like the pandemic has not ended in other parts of the world. So that, that's what shown me. It's more like a reality. And the last thing, I don't know if you follow all the environmental stuff, all the pollution that we did with the COVID, what's going to happen with that? It's, I feel like it's a tsunami that is coming, right? All the masks that we use, I was reading in Atlantic last time, I think 3 million masks uh, per minute. It was like a ridiculous amount of waste that we're creating now only of COVID. <laughs> so, I mean, we could keep talking about this, but I think there's a lot of things that were just eye-openers that hopefully, you know, rice folks, if they want like a, there's a launch of business opportunity there, right? But you can also do good now. So I think that combination of social enterprise, which actually I took that class, I forgot the, 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 the oh my God, he's gonna kill me, but that, uh, there's like a very good book of Mohammed Yunus, the guy won the Nobel Prize, and he actually writes this book about social enterprises. And, and I'm very into that. I think you can do very good money with a mission, and I think we should probably aim to that. Absolutely. And it just feels good that we have alumni that are focusing on these things. And we've had prior podcasts about that as well as social, excuse me, conscious capitalism as well. Similar kind of energy as well. So lots to talk about there and it'd be great to maybe have a round two after things have fleshed out in your various projects. So yeah, I um, love to. <laughs> Omar, thank you for coming on. I'll have, you know, and for folks listening, Remember, we have our reunion coming up in April, so be sure to register for that. And so, Omar, just final thoughts from you in terms of either a call to action, general messages for the rice business, community. The mic is yours. No, thank you. I mean, you guys can connect me LinkedIn or Twitter. Uh, O-M-A-T-U-K, Omar Matu. Uh, I'm teaching a course at the MBL Rice. I would love to see some of you there on value-based care and really let's try to keep a community i mean as a mexican that came to the united states rice has been a good tree something that you can hold and you can connect and i'm very grateful to rice and i'm happy to help or work with someone else from the rice community absolutely and for you and everyone else listening in invite folks on to the podcast that have they're leading and they have they have messages and they're wanting to change things and make things better and we can help to amplify that message and to give you a bullhorn <laughs> we are here at the ready omar thank you for coming on no thank you so much this has been i'll have you know thanks for listening you can find links and more information about our guests hosts and announcements on our website business.rice.edu Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts and leave us a comment while you're at it. Let us know what you think. I'll Have You Know is a production of Rice Business and is sponsored by the Rice Business Alumni Board. The hosts of I'll Have You Know are myself, Christine Dobbin, and David Drew Gleaver. 